I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today I have as my guest, Lynn Margario. She is the CEO of Cradles to Crayons. She is a leader in the field of social justice and children's issues. She's the founder and CEO of Cradle to Crayons, and she leads this national nonprofit with giving factories, which is something we're going to talk about today, in Boston, Chicago, and Philadelphia, and an online donation platform called the Giving Factory Direct, which serves New York City and the San Francisco Bay Area. The largest national nonprofit with clothing insecurity at the core of its mission, Cradles to Crayons provides children living in low income and homeless situations with clothing and other everyday essentials such as diapers, winter coats, shoes, hygiene items, backpacks, and more. Lynn launched Cradles to Crayons in 2002, and to date, the organization has distributed more than 4 million packages to kids birth age through age 12. Lynn Margario, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thanks for having me, Toby. First, I have to ask you the same question we ask all of our guests, Lynn, which is give us like a two to three minute sort of synopsis of your life, your career, maybe where you were born, how you were mentored or educated, how you found your way into this role. So I grew up in Michigan. And as I think about my kind of childhood, I have recollections of I worked in my dad's office he was a doctor and I was always struck by the amount of time and attention that he took with uh, with his patients and then my mom did a lot of volunteer work and she brought the whole family into a number of her projects so I really volunteerism was very much a part of how I was a kid and how I grew up. And my first job was consulting. There I was working on projects for or cases for large companies um, like Corning and GE, Xerox, um, Ikea, uh, working on cost competitiveness, marketing, uh, logistics, supply chain work. I loved that in the work that I did. I was learning a ton. One of the things that really stuck out for me when I was doing that work was the pro bono assignments that we did and the projects. I didn't know that that was going to really appeal to me when I took the job in consulting, but that's really what got my passions going. And being able to come into a project was a partnership with the National Center on Education and the Economy. We had former secretaries of labor. Um, we had business leaders. And at the time, I was this researcher and um, I was helping with a bunch of the interviews. It really struck me how there is a real power in collaboration between corporations and what business people can bring to a societal issue. We had nonprofit partners who were deep in the issue area. And then we had government leaders who were part of looking at this issue of competitiveness and education 
from the policy perspective. So I had this amazing initiation into how the different sectors of our economy really can come together and leverage the expertise that each of us, um, you know, each sector brings. And so that really sparked a bug and an interest in me to pursue social services and policy. And I had the opportunity to go to D.C., and work on health reform was uh, in the Clinton uh, White House. And that was an amazing education and uh, an opportunity to be working really in a place where it has the potential to impact our entire society. And that particular initiative did not see the success that we had hoped. It did not pass universal health care in, uh, in that time. What it meant for me, in retrospect, this real need to do something that was tangible, where I could see more immediacy in the impact that I was ha having from the White House I traveled, I did more consulting work, and then I had in the back of my mind, I want to get back to having an impact. I didn't know what that was going to look like. It could have been back in policy or in the nonprofit space and helping my niece get dressed. She was two at the time in Michigan, I was visiting home. And I was taking clothes from her drawer and looking at them and seeing they were brand new, but clearly too small for her. Um, and I saw in my brother's house and in friends' houses that when they were starting to grow, you know, have young families, yes. yeah. their homes were just getting overrun with children's items because kids grow so fast mm -hmm. um, and they're using something or maybe in the case of Elise, never used or never put on these clothes. And um, so I had the sort of uh, the supply chain light bulb and um, went off for me. And thinking kids grow so fast that there is an ever recharging source of potential supply here that if I could just figure out how to harness it and move it to families who could really benefit from it, that there could be something really powerful in that. So we're going to come back to that. But first, I want to go back to the earlier days in your life and ask a couple of questions. One, your first job, you said consulting, but tell us a little bit more about that. You didn't just like finish high school and start consulting. You went to college, you studied something. You Can you tell us a little bit more about how you found that way? So I went to Georgetown and I majored in history with a minor in French. And if I'm honest about it, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I was um, when I grew up. And so I thought there were a lot of consulting firms that were coming onto campus. And um, and so I, I thought, well, this could be um, a really great training ground. I can see what is it like to learn about business and get some amazing training in analytics and presentation and interview skills and perhaps there I could discover what was going to ignite my passion. 
I'm also a history major with a French minor. <laughs> so, Are you kidding? Yes. And did you study abroad your junior year? I did. <laughs> Where I did you study? In Paris. Um, and uh, yeah, I lived in the 16th. Um, <laughs> well, no, I the program was in the 16th, but I lived in. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I studied and well, I don't know that I did a ton of studying when I was there. So immediately after I graduated, I went back and I did stage for a an investment um, boutique. And I, I, I loved that. I love to travel also. I had an opportunity to live in Paris again right after uh, my time in the White House. So mid-90s, I was doing some work for IKEA. So I was living in Paris and uh, for a few months there. And and the other part of your past, I want to just not skip over so quickly. You said you had the opportunity to work in the White House, which is, sounds so casual, but like, how did that happen? I mean, people want to know how to have an opportunity like that. It happened to be the person that I was working for close to the Clintons and that project that I was mentioning that I had the chance to work on with um, the National Center for Education and the Economy. Hillary Clinton worked on that. She was a co-chair for um, implementation of the recommendations that came out of that report. And so I had a chance to, uh, to work with her as well. And uh, history uh, happened where yeah. um, Bill Clinton decided he was going to run. And I remember the very early days of that where they really both felt that it was a very long shot. Yeah, well, they've certainly stayed in my life through the years, the Clintons, and now it's uh, UN General Assembly starting and Clinton Global Initiative here in New York. So they are controversial in many people's eyes, but they have definitely stayed the course in their commitment to public service for sure. I admire that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And uh, I worked for the Clinton Foundation uh, in the early days where I helped to get the HIV AIDS initiative off the ground. And that was uh, a, a real honor and privilege. You said you had this little epiphany with your niece and you're helping her uh, get trust, but tell us how that actually does lead to cradles to crayons. What exactly happened? I put that consulting hat back on and I said, okay, how would I go about doing some research? So it was the, it was market research thinking, okay, well, I have this idea, but surely someone has thought of it and someone is doing it already. I quickly learned that it, that was not the case. How I, you know, how I went about doing it was thinking about, okay, well, what I have to do is assemble a network. I've got to assemble a network on the supply side. I've got to figure out, okay, if my theory is that there is an ever recharging source of supply, how am I going to get to that efficiently? And how am I going to bring it to some place where it can be sorted and assembled? And then how am I going to figure out where it's going to go? And so I started doing interviews with organizations that I thought might be places that um, would help me with drives and with product. And then I also, uh, at the same time, talked with organizations that were on the front lines, people on the front lines working with families who were struggling financially. Um, so talking to uh, social workers, 
talking to people working in um, homeless shelters, government programs, women and infants and children's programs, and asking them questions about, are you seeing a need here? Are families showing up and asking you for help with clothing and with other supplies for their kids? And what are they asking for? What are the ages of the kids that they need items for? And um, and so I started to create my business model through those interviews. And one of the things that really stuck out for me when I was having those conversations was this sense of you need to keep quality at the center of what you do here, because um, as that case manager or as that social worker, that nurse or that teacher who was having conversations or providing services um, to that child or caregiver or parent were very clear in saying, we don't want to set an expectation, you know, for getting something for your child, you know, for a child that is going to be dashed because you're not reliable or because the items that are being provided um, to that child are someone's discards and um, something that nobody would want to wear. From those conversations, we established a, a mantra that quality equals dignity. And that is something 21 years later, Wherever you visit us, you will see on our walls, quality equals dignity. You will see um, and we'll talk about why it is so important that whether you're donating, you know, a winter coat or a pair of shoes, you know, a sweater, uh, two cradles to crayons or to another organization that really thinking about who is going to receive this item and are they going to, how are they going to feel when they get this item? Are they going to feel good? Are they going to, is that going to put a smile on their face or, you know, are they going to feel like someone cares? I, I love that. And I would say the inverse is true, right? Uh, dignity equals quality as well. Ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, we have as our guest, Lynn Margario, and she's the CEO and founder of Cradles to Crayons since 2002. Lynn, I'm going to ask you a devil's advocate question here. We hear all these stories on sustainability about how it, this is a consumer culture we have and people are over-consuming. And thank God you're offering a place for that over-consumption to go into a healthier needs-based place. Maybe you're seeing with some of the suppliers, maybe you're helping them realize that they're, they need to think a little bit more differently about what they're producing, the volume and to whom or for whom. Is that, mm -hmm. is that any sort of lessons learned there? Are your suppliers raising questions or concerns? It makes me think about a, a few different things. One, certainly fast fashion provides in some cases a lot more volume of items but again, coming back to that question of quality equals dignity, can we actually repurpose or reuse that item? And oftentimes you're going to see holes in the knees um, mm -hmm. if it's a pair of boys' pants. So there's a there's a bit of a trade-off with the um with the fast fashion coming through. Now there's a lot of competition 
four items that are going into bins out there in the community. And, you know, some of those bins just go overseas. They are, you know, they're not necessarily benefiting um, a child or family, you know, in this community or in any of the communities where we are serving and other models. We've got some large retailers who have partnerships with nonprofit organizations as their front end marketing engines. So they get, um, they'll go out, maybe do pickups around the community, and then they'll bring those bags and boxes of, uh, of donated clothing to a large for-profit company who pays them uh, by the pound for yeah. the goods that are that are donated. So there's an increasing competition for this recycled stream yeah. in Massachusetts. We have a textile ban that just came into effect. And so um, so we're now seeing some schools and some um, parks, public parks that are getting funds from recyclers who are getting some of that clothing donation stream. So um, so it's a, it's a time of flux right now to really figure out how can we be, we and other organizations that are focused on clothing and security, be getting our message out there about the importance of ensuring that kids who are living in families that are struggling financially are benefiting from some of those bulk donations coming directly from you know retailers or wholesalers and in the community where there's a choice between putting something in a bin going to a recycler or a bin going into a benefit of a nonprofit organization that's going to be serving a local child or family that, you know, people are thinking about both. Mm -hmm. Like I say, we don't want people's junk. We're happy for that to go through the recycle stream. We want the high quality goods. And if people want to be involved or know more, how best to be in touch with you or with the organization? So our website is the best place to go, cradlestocrayons.org. And we have uh, a number of ways people can get involved. We've got uh, volunteer shifts, both in person at our giving factory locations in Boston, Philadelphia, and Chicago. Uh, we have an online donation platform called Giving Factory Direct. So um, you can be anywhere in the country and from the convenience of your home, you can tell us I have clothing that is girls size six and we match you to a child who wears girls size um, six clothes. You'll get a shipping label from us and your donations will go directly to a child who really needs that support. Um, and then it's also a place where you can learn more about the very large need of clothing insecurity, which impacts two out of five kids across the United States, which translates to about 20 million children. And we're seeing even base news about the number of children now is going below poverty again. So it's... Yes. It's an ex it's an extrapolation of this, right? It's food, it's clothing, it's bare necessities, really. 
It is. Um, and every kid, every kid deserves to be a kid. And so they need their basic needs met. You you sometimes don't even touch the clothing. You're just you facilitate the connection between the donor and the recipient with a, a shipping label. And so that sounds like a very clean and efficient model. Is that a correct assumption? Yes. So during COVID, we found ourselves like so many other people did, um, where our core business model was really impacted. Um, you know, if you visit one of our giving factory locations, it's an amazing place of community and we'll have hundreds of volunteers in at um, any given time volunteering side by side to sort, inspect and package um, clothing and other um, other donations. And of course, during COVID, we couldn't do that. And yet the need was there and the need was, you know, for some of the items even larger than it had been before the pandemic. And so we took a step back and said, we never thought this could happen. And here we are living it. And so how can we take advantage and create a digital platform that will allow people to do this work, still maintaining that um, principle of quality equals dignity, so that we just bring our 20 years of knowledge about what is the need in the community, um, we bring our partnership um, and collaborative model where we're partnering with schools, um, social service agencies, and government agencies who are working on the front lines. And so we just essentially create that connection to you and your home through the internet to the child who needs the goods that you have. You can go out and buy them. You can have, if you've got kids in your household that are outgrowing things, you can offer that up too. And with the data, do you see trend lines when, for example, there's an earthquake or a natural disaster? Do you see an actual spike in need? What we see is that we have some of our unhoused families. We have families who um, are living in poverty or living in low income who need our services and they're part of our current communities, but we are seeing now truckload or busload after busload of, um, of individuals coming in from places that uh, where they're carrying their belongings and right. that's all they have. When they show up, they need housing. They need diapers, which we also um, provide. They need clothing. We are very much part of that solution set with um, some of our other agency partners who are providing food and shelter and trying to get those kids into schools. And so it really does take the proverbial village to, um, to welcome those yeah. newcomers. So sometimes it's a natural disaster. And sometimes there are other, you know, forces at work or when benefits are cut, we see a spike again because people who were covering expenses yeah. for clothing or for food when the child's uh, tax credit was had been expanded, when that shrunk again, well, they have to fall back on organizations like ours. I wonder if there are any shout outs you want to give to either brands 
philanthropists, uh, corporations, elected officials who are, you know, some of your best allies? We've had a really amazing support from uh, from some companies that are present and very active in uh, the locations where, you know, where we have a giving factory and now are helping us grow. Um, Bank of America comes to mind, TJX, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Discover, NBC Universal, and Comcast, um, Bain and Company, Bain Capital. I know <laughs> I'm going to forget, forget so many yeah. important companies yeah. and and um, and supporters. And we are just starting now on the advocacy front. So this is brand new. We're looking for champions. We've um, we've got um, some beginnings of support in Massachusetts and in Pennsylvania, which we're really excited about. Um, and we're seeking to put clothing and security on the radar in um, in Washington D.C. And also at state capitals like Pennsylvania or just starting at D.C.? Doing work, um, advocacy work on both sides, both that state and also in, um, in Pennsylvania in the Philadelphia area. And if you think of lifespan, is there a natural symmetry for you to be working with, say, Dress for Success, where you, you've got the youngest to 12-ish age and then... Is the teen years, but then what about early professional years? I'm excited. I'm seeing a vision for where where do we want to take this? We are one organization, and um, this need is huge. 20 million kids across the United States. So what it is going to take is um, us coming together and creating um, a network and a, a space for organizations that care about clothing and security who are focused on young ones like we are from birth to age 12. We wanna have those um, organizations that care about teen years and college years. There are basic needs coordinators at so many universities right now because you've got students who are showing up who need food and they need supports with clothing. And so I think our voices become that much stronger when we are able to understand why this is a need for people. Mm -hmm. Clothing is, you, you can't go out in the world without a winter coat when it's 20 degrees outside. You need shoes to be able to walk. You want to have clothes that you can feel proud of when you're in a classroom. So many kids are shrinking into themselves because they're feeling shame or maybe they're being bullied because of their appearance and clothing is so much a part of that. That's true for kids. That's true for teens. That's true for, you know, for adults. So for, for where we want to go, which is really to help lead the way for putting clothing and security on the map alongside other really critical basic needs. I do believe you're onto something there when you think about the full lifespan. And of course, ideally, we would address it so well at the roots that this problem would resolve itself. But that's not going to happen right away. Who'd have thought? Last question for you is words of wisdom, pearls of wisdom, advice you have either for your younger self or for someone who's either starting out in their career or someone who's maybe been disrupted mid-career. What sort of pearls of wisdom do you share with people? When I think about 
um, people who are just entering the uh, work world, sometimes you don't realize the voice that you have. And particularly in the moment in which we are living, people who are growing up now have a wealth of experience that my generation does not have. And there's power in that. And so I think about the, the facility and fluency with technology. And I also think about how much smarter, I think, uh, connected to society and centered in others' experiences that this generation coming up is. And so I would say um, really come in and think about how your workplace can be moved along the continuum of really making a difference in society mm -hmm. and making an impact in your community. And you can be a part of making that happen. Yeah, I love that. That's really great advice. It's a sense of purpose tied to that sort of privilege that we have actually to be informed, connected. And as you say, when we were starting out, it was not so. Right? There was no yeah. internet. There was no email, no Twitter. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank our guest today, Lynn Margario, who is the CEO and founder actually of Cradles to Crayons, a great organization. And Lynn, um, I hope you want to come back and we can talk more about that great consortium that we're going to put together after this call. <laughs> you can count me in, Toby. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at tusnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.